0: I don't know how many of you are tracking what's going on with the coronavirus, uh, but since I am from Hong Kong and China, and my parents are avoiding going back there. I follow it pretty closely right now. And um, I think in any time of crisis, what we see is that we see the best and the worst of humanity coming out. Uh, Again, in my hometown of Hong Kong, people are buying up surgical masks because people want to wear them for prevention, but then selling them at like five times, six times, ten times the price of what it would normally cost. And so it just seems wrong to profit uh, from that in, in the midst of a crisis. But there was a story that was really moving to me that I saw this week uh, from a newspaper in Hong Kong. It was a story of, uh, I posted it on my Facebook page in case you follow my Facebook page, but uh, it was a story of a 68-year-old sanitation worker uh, in China. And basically what he did is he, he, he took his life savings of $1,710 U.S. dollars. He took it to a police station because I guess he didn't know where else to take it. And he just left it there with a note and then ran off. And on the note, he said this, Urgent Please send to Wuhan Center for Disease Control and Prevention to cheer on the brave workers, a token of my appreciation. He said later on, I think when they found him, Um, that he had made better use of that money uh, cheering up these sanitation workers than improving his own quality of life. Here was a man who made $85 a month, and the $1,710 is almost two years of, of savings for him if he just saved every dollar that he had earned. And yet he gave it joyfully, sacrificially, for the sake of others, It's a picture of of the widow's might from Scripture. It's a picture of joyful sacrificial giving. And in today's passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see God tell us that the church's witness will involve suffering. And that suffering doesn't necessarily mean lack of joy, but that suffering does mean that there is a sacrificial cost for us as believers as we witness to the living God. We're not called to suffer just for the sake of suffering but that we suffer as those with hope and we suffer as those who trust in God as we walk through this broken life, trusting that he will use even suffering to fulfill his purposes. And my hope is that we'll see that the main point of today's passage, mainly focusing on chapter 11, is that our gracious God will bring his kingdom, so let's suffer in our witness. Our gracious God will bring in his kingdom, so let's suffer in our witness. I'm going to give a quick summary of chapters 8 and 10. My hope is, again, this is a difficult book, but my hope is as you, if you go home and you read it for yourself, that you will be able to make sense of at least what is going on and the big picture of it. Again, I can't, if, you've not, if you've not heard any sermons in this series so far, please listen to chap, uh, the first sermon that kind of says how we're interpreting this book. So again, I said in the first sermon that there's this term of recapitulation, meaning scripture, uh, not scripture, revelation specifically, being this apocalyptic, prophetic book written in the form of a letter, is not meant to be read literally. Not that it's not meant to be taken seriously, but that even there's so many little things in there that tell us. One, it's a vision that's given to John and that there's symbolism in that vision that point us to the reality of what God is doing. And when we say recapitulation instead of chronological reading of Revelation, what we mean is that there are events in Revelation that are gone through again and again in chunks that are trying to make different points of what these last days are like. And so... Uh, What we saw last week is we saw this opening of seven seals, and so that was describing the last days in the ways of opening the seven seals, and in the section that we're in today in chapters 8 through 11, we see this seven trumpets, later on we're going to see seven bowls. So we see these series of seven things, again, that are describing the last days, but coming at it from a different angle again and again to make different theological points. So again, we're looking at the seven trumpets today, but I want to start with the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet does teach that there will be a final judgment, that each and every human being must stand before God and be held accountable and responsible for the life that they were given by God and the way in which they lived that life. If there is a God, if we assume that, whether you believe in this God or not, I don't want to assume what you believe, then we are all living our life before God. We may not be living our life for God, but if there is a God, then we are living our lives before God. Now in this final judgment, we see it's spoken about in chapter 11 and the seventh trumpet and verse 15 of chapter 11 says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever. We hear in this section, this again, this idea of like all human beings being held accountable for the way they've lived their lives, and that there's this hope that those who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, been covered by the blood of the Lamb who was slain, that they have confidence to be transformed and confidence to enter into this kingdom which is coming, this kingdom that has been uh, that the Lord has been bringing in ever since his first coming to take over this broken world that we live in. And we all recognize we live in a broken world, no matter how we describe that brokenness. We have this Christian hope that God will bring in this perfect, sinless, flourishing for all kingdom. And that is the work that he is doing in this world. And this is our hope, that through Christ, we can dwell in this kingdom of our Lord one day. And that our confidence comes from the work of our Lord Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. I want to start with that because that's the hope that grounds us. And we're going to look at some of these six trumpets of judgment that come before rather quickly. Now again, I've said this before, but part of the reason why Revelation is a difficult book to read for us as modern readers is that you can't get away from it. There's themes of judgment as a pastor, I would rather not talk about judgment because it's not very popular. But if we're going to be faithful to what Revelation is talking about, we have to talk about this idea of judgment. Now, for us who are Christians, we can think of the idea of judgment and believe it and find it rather scary. Or we could believe even that there's a good God and a good God means that he doesn't bring judgment of this kind Now, I think whether we are Christian or not, what we end up doing is we tend to project the most uncharitable, unjust, even abusive judgment upon God. And I think we do that because the reality is we we live in a broken world. We have experienced all kinds of unjust, even abusive judgment. And we project that onto God thinking that is who God is. That is the kind of judge that he is, we tend to want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We project our broken experiences of being judged upon God, believing him to be that kind of judge. Well, it is correct. God is not that kind of judge. He's not a cruel, capricious judge. But that doesn't mean that God is not judge at all. Our objection to God bringing judgment is usually quite inconsistent because as we live in this world, we don't generally have a problem with parents disciplining their children. We don't generally have a problem with there being police who have, make judgments of right and wrong. We don't have a problem with there being a court that is judge and jury who make judgments of guilt. We would say as a society, we want parents to discipline out of love, not anger. We want our policemen to be professional. We want our court systems to be just. We want our judge and juries to be just, and we work as a society to reform all of those things, and we should because we live in a broken world, and those things need to be continually reformed. But because we are humans who are broken and have experienced unjust judgment, we should also consider whether our conception of God the judge is actually needing reforming as well. That we have projected onto God a kind of judge that he is in fact not. And we will see in this passage, essentially a reteaching of us of the kind of judge that God is. These first six trumpets that we see in chapters eight and nine are evocative, as is the whole book of Revelation, is stirring, Again, as modern readers, even scary because they're very unfamiliar pictures to us. But we have to recognize that these judgments, the first six six judgments and the first six trumpets are not final judgments. They are wake-up calls. And in that sense, it's in line with all of Scripture. God calling out to humanity to turn from that which brings life to turn to God who brings eternal life. It's a wake-up call for humanity to turn from its self-destructive ways, to turn to God who brings eternal life. And the teaching of Scripture is, and also in Revelation, is that, that we have a God who restrains us from our full capability of our brokenness. Perhaps even restrain us from the fullness of our desire to do what is wrong. And this kind of teaching is really in line with God's covenant with people throughout Scripture. Again, the Old Testament, we see very clearly this, this laying out of God's covenant with people of blessings and curses. And again, we push against that as well. We don't really like this idea of blessings and curses, but it really is just simply recognizing that God is our creator, that God is our heavenly parent. Who of us as parents have not used the mixture of rewards and punishments to discipline our children? Words of praise and affirmation versus words of, of warning. We simply reflect God, the heavenly parent, when we do that as human beings as well. And yet we know that as human parents, we can be overly harsh. We can be unjust. We can even be very inconsistent in the way we discipline our children. And yet we believe in a God, a heavenly father who is compassionate, who is just, who is righteous, who is always consistent in the way that he parents us that somehow he will use even the pain and suffering in our lives for his good purposes. And I think that's why C.S. Lewis's famous quote resonates so well with us, because I think deep down, we know it to be true. We know, left to ourselves, we will want to indulge in pleasure and nothing else. Lewis says this, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Again, one of the main themes in Revelation, or in this section particularly of the six trumpets, is that God is restraining himself in his judgment. He is wanting not just to punish, he is wanting to wake people up to see the brokenness of this life to see the way in which we so often have the wool pulled over our eyes and happy to go along with the system of this world, happy to go along with indulging our own sins. And he is restraining in his judgment so that we might wake up and turn to him. And in this section of the six trumpets, we see this theme in these trumpets of only a third of the earth A third of the trees, a third of the living creatures, a third of the seas, a third of the ships are affected by the judgment. God would be completely just in saying, just going to judge all of it. But he restrains in his judgment for the sake of calling people back to himself. It is symbolic of God's compassion to the world. I know as a parent, I am prone to be unrestrained in my judgment, to jump to conclusions, to be inconsistent, or perhaps to go the other end, to be fearful, to disappoint my own children and therefore not discipline. God, in his compassion, restrains in his judgment. In the last days, as a wake-up call, again, to call us to set our hearts upon him, to find life in his ways and not in our own ways, That this is the same long-suffering, patient God who is slow to anger, abounding in love and compassion, who has been at work throughout all of history to bring history to the end of creating a people who will glorify God with all of their life, to choose eternal life in God and not a path of self-destruction. It really makes us ask the most basic of questions in life. Where do you find life? Where do you believe life is to be found in this world? Is there life beyond this world? Or we just have our 50, 60, 70, 80 years of life and that's it? Are we just trying to do the best with what we've been given and that's it? Do you believe that there is a judgment, that we are accountable to God in the way we live our lives? And if you believe in it, what would you do to warn friends and families and co-workers to wake them up, to see the the reality unveiled by Scripture, by God, and to point them to the one who will bring life, the holy and compassionate God? I referenced in my last sermon about a cult group, and I want to tell you about this cult group a little bit this week. I had a friend named Sarah in college. And... Uh, She was a non-Christian when I first met her, and she started coming into Varsity Christian Fellowship, which I was a part of, and I was really encouraged that she was coming, and she came for a little bit, and then I started not seeing her as much, and I I learned later on that she started going to another Christian group, but a Christian group that I had heard was a cult group, and so I didn't really know anything about this group, it seemed to look fine, seemed to look Christian, um, but I was really concerned about her, so I, I, I started going to this other campus group, well, at least I went once, to check it out. And then students from that campus ministry began to try to recruit me and convert me. Um, they met in my dorm and went over various Bible passages to, to essentially convince me that I had to be baptized in their church in order to be saved, in their church alone alone. I went to one of their worship services, and it was vibrant and energetic and diverse, and everyone was super friendly, and they, they was, I could see the draw to it. But the more they tried to convert me, the more I began to see that there was something that was really off. They would pray for me you know, after a Bible study, and it was like the weirdest prayer I've ever had. They, I mean, we'd be you know, kind of intimate, sitting next to each other, and they'd pray for me like, Lord Jesus, I pray that Didi would come to see. I was like, dude, I'm right here. Like, You don't need to yell to God. God can hear you. It was just weird. It was like they were praying to thin air, praying as if hoping that God would hear their prayer. And then I began to see them lose their temper with me when I pushed back against their teaching, not convinced that what they were teaching was correct. I began to learn from others who used to be in the group that they would use these high-pressure tactics uh, with their members to pressure them to donate money to the church, that they would have these discipleship relationships with a particular mentor, and this mentor would urge them to confess their sins, and then they would make record of these sins. And what happened in the end is when people try to leave or push back against teaching, then they would use these confessions against their members. And that when they left, they would straight up ostracize ex-members. I mean, these are just classic sociological definitions of what a cult does. And maybe the biggest red flag to me, and this is what I mentioned last week, is when you tried to push against them in any way or talk about allegations made against them, they would be so convinced that was because they were the true followers of Jesus. That because they're being criticized, because I'm persecuting them, I'm just confirming to them that they are following Jesus the right way. And that was the most disturbing thing because there was no way to have a true dialogue with them. The more I said, the more I was convincing them they were doing the right thing. I couldn't convince my friend, Sarah, to leave. In fact, I had very little interaction with him, with her, because it was like I was cut off from her and I could only meet with the members who were trying to convert me and recruit me. Eventually, Sarah's parents basically staged an intervention. They ambushed her on a family holiday. They brought in an ex member of this group who basically laid out all the evidence of financial mismanagement, the siphoning of giving towards top leaders, the spiritual abuse, the cult like behavior, and and praise God that Sarah responded to that intervention and and left the group. And somehow I remember talking to her afterwards that she would still say, that is where she found Jesus. That is where she understood gospel for the first time amidst all of that. Craziness. She knew all that stuff was wrong, and she left it. How far would you go to save someone from self-destruction? When you see a friend or family member going down a path that's not just not what you agree with, but you see is really, really hurting them, destroying them. If scripture is true... if revelation is truly unveiling a spiritual reality, then we have greater things to worry about than just interventions for cult groups and addictions and abusive relationships and toxic relationships. Our greatest addiction, our greatest toxic relationship is to sin and to Satan. And the world has convinced us we should forget about both of those things because they're just not real. God is trying to wake us up in these last days. Do you believe those things to be spiritual realities? I mean, that is a question that we have to wrestle with as we read Revelation. Is that a real spiritual reality that we all fight against? That we are to wake up and see that life can only be found in Jesus Christ. That he is the one who gives us life to the full and eternal life through God. So we've kind of talked about the six trumpets and where that's pointing to, the restraining of God's judgment in order to wake us up to see that life is to be found in God. In chapter 10, which I'm really not going to talk about, is essentially John is being recommissioned to bring this message to the church at the time and also to us now, for you who are reading it. Yourself, the little scroll in chapter ten is the same scroll that Jesus was the only one who is worthy to open. It is little because the image in chapter ten is of um, this humongous angel who can straddle both sea and land, and so it's the scroll was little only in comparison to the angel. But I really want to focus in our last few minutes on chapter eleven. It's this strange kind of story that you heard read earlier, and it's really meant to be heard as a parable. And the parable of the two witnesses really just points to this very simple message that the sacrificial suffering of the church is its witness. The sacrificial suffering of the church is its witness. Verse 4 in chapter 11 says, there are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And these two olive trees and two lampstands really point effectively to the church's witness to the watching world. You heard read Zechariah 4, referencing these two olive trees. And in its original content, it was pointing to two anointed leaders, a royal leader to rebuild the temple and a high priest to lead worship. And as we read it now, the two witnesses represent all saints, all believers who witness to the reality of God. And point to how all saints and all believers are meant to serve as priests to this world, to to one day rule as kings under God. And the reason why it's two witnesses, because Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, talks about there requiring there being two witnesses to confirm a testimony. So the testimony of the Lord our God is confirmed by these two witnesses. And yet the story, this parable continues in verse seven. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And then it goes on to say, where the Lord was crucified. It reminds us the words of believers and testifying to the truth of God is vital. How will the world understand the times that they're going through unless we share what scripture has told us about that, if we're not sharing the gospel in word and deed with our words and our life. And this imagery of Satan conquering and killing the two witnesses points again to this sacrificial suffering nature of the church. It doesn't necessarily mean that all Christians must be martyred for their faith, but it does mean that we should expect opposition from the enemy. The two witnesses are killed where the Lord was crucified, and that symbolizes how the church needs to follow in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was willing to die, willing to go to the cross for our sake. We, too, must be willing to pick up our cross and die to ourselves for the sake of the glory of God and his witness to this world. We must be willing to participate in the death of Christ, We must be able to face death as those with hope. There are missionaries in China right now who have made the choice to stay put despite coronavirus for the sake of the gospel. Many of them could easily leave, right? They have the funds, they have the citizenship to get on a plane and get out of there. Some of them could even just get on the the, the flight that was organized by their home country to get out of China. But some of them are choosing to stay, to serve their neighbors out of love for Christ, out of love for them in the midst of an epidemic. And one American missionary wrote this. He said, we've decided to return to China and stay because this is where we live. This is home for us now. And many of our brothers and sisters can't just hop on a flight out. Not that it's wrong to leave, but we've decided to stay and stand with those who are here. We hope to be hospitable and hopeful. We want to hold out light and darkness, point to peace and anxiety, and introduce people to Christ the rock in uncertain times. Please pray for all Christians in China towards similar ends. I mean, it's, I don't know what city is in, but in many cities in China, it's just lockdown mode in order to contain... The virus. And yes, these missionaries obviously must be wise for the sake of containment and not spreading the disease. And yet, just to be hospitable in that atmosphere of anxiety and fear is countercultural, is sacrificial suffering for the sake of the gospel. They are participating in the death of Christ by willing to do that by willing to face death with hope. Chapter 11 continues in verse 11 saying, but after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. The two witness being resurrected symbolizes that the church after having di- been willing to die to themselves and pick up their own cross will be raised to new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Just as we are spiritually buried in Christ's death, so we are raised up in new life through his resurrection. We have hope for eternal life because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can face death with hope. And this passage calls us to do so. But not just that. Verse 12 continues. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. The ascension of the two witnesses to heaven, to the throne room of God, to be with father and son is again pointing to the ultimate hope that we have as Christians. That God will make us priests and rulers of this world under his rule, vice regents under him. That is our hope. That one day we will have that role, that honor under God. Verse 13 continues, And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. See, it's interesting. You hear that, and probably your first thought is like, that sounds kind of scary and messed up. But here's the thing. When we take a deeper look at his, at this We see here people turning to God in the midst of this judgment. And it's interesting, this this phrase, the rest, in Greek, hoi lapoi, those who repent and give glory to God. In the Old Testament, when we look at passages like Isaiah 6.13 or Amos 5.3, we see that one-tenth of people are the ones who repent and give glory to God, who heed the call to turn back to God. But here, what we see, and, and also the 7,000 number is an allusion to the Old Testament in First Kings 19, the faithful remnant who are spared while the majority are wiped out. But John here reverses it. That's the message that God has given to John, that one-tenth or 7,000 people are the ones who face judgment. And the rest, the hoi lapoi in Greek, the nine-tenths are spared. One theologian says, not the faithful minority, but the faithless majority are spared so that they may come to faith and repentance. Again, this is a vision full of symbolism. It's not meant to be taken literally. And so this symbolism again points to our compassionate God who is far more gracious than we imagine. I think of a simple thing like doing a membership class and how meaningful that is to me because it reminds me how often we as Christians or just people, we judge people and say, well, they're not really a Christian because they don't believe this. Well, they're not really a Christian because they don't do this. Well, they're not really a Christian because they don't fight against this. And becoming a member, at least in our church, in our denomination, is very simple. Are you a Christian? Do you believe in the gospel? Will you try to live out the Christian life? That's pretty much it. You don't have to have your life together. You don't have to get all your doctrine together. God is far more gracious than we are far more gracious than we imagine. He is wanting to save as many as possible. He is wanting as many to turn to him and find life in him as possible. I want to ask you this question to end. Are you willing to suffer for the sake of witnessing to Christ? Are you willing to suffer for the sake of witnessing to Christ? Witnessing, means living distinctly for Christ in this world. Living distinctly according to Christ's teaching. If you focus on living out the teachings of Scripture, trust me, your life will be distinct. You will stand out. If as Christians, we focus on living distinctly, the reality is suffering of some kind will come. That is the broken world we live in. We don't have to go seek it out. We don't have to go to like, well, if I'm persecuted, that means I'm a real Christian. We focus on living faithfully to God, living distinctly according to God, and not just trying to be like everyone else. Maybe we're actually like everyone else, and we have yet to be transformed in our thoughts and our motivations, or... Perhaps we are different, and we know we're different, but we're trying so hard not to let it out. And it can't just be, I don't watch R-rated movies, I don't do drugs, I don't drink, I'm nice to everyone. That's an anemic, legalistic Christian faith. No one wants that. God wants to sanctify our heart motivations. He exhorts us to sacrificial love for those around us, and he calls us to risk our reputations for Jesus. I'm not saying being foolish about it. I know people who work in fields where they have to be very careful about the way they talk about their faith. I'm all for that, but you have to be willing to risk at the same time, and I know men and women who do that as well. They're wise, They're careful, but they take risks for the sake of living distinctly, for the sake of a witness to Jesus Christ. We live in a college town. It's academia. There's lots of prejudice against Christians. And people who are deep in that, Christians who are deep in that, have to be careful. But yet not hiding the lampstand. God calls us to shine the light of our witness to all. Two examples that just came to me this week that really touched me as examples of Christians living distinctly is a guy who's been helping us with the building. He has skills in contracting. I had lunch with him this, this week and just getting to know each other a little bit. I really didn't know anything about him beyond his skills in fixing things. And, and I, I learned that, you know, they, they've been foster parents for a long time. They've adopted three kids um, through fostering. And he just told me crazy stories of the life of a foster parent. And stories that I can't even tell here because they feel inappropriate. Children that they fostered for a while that were essentially like feral children that had experienced no love, no relationship from their birth parents. That they had just learned from birth. Maybe not from birth. They had to be fed, I guess, when they are infants. But at some point, they were just left to fend for themselves. And they, he just told me stories of trying to love and care and foster those children. And at some point, they said, we just... We can't. Like, their own children were, were, were literally being put at risk. And they said, we just are not in the place to foster feral children. But their willingness to do so, to foster again and again, to adopt some of those kids that they fostered was just an example of living distinctly in this world as a Christian. This week, we had our first legal vocational group some of, some of you were there. And this vocational group thing is, Im, is important to me. <laughs> and I know in my time left here, I'm going to push with all my might to make this some, something a reality because to me it is one of the great voids in Christian discipleship that Christians cannot answer the question, what does your faith have to do with your work? If you can't answer that question then 40, 60, 80 hours of your life have nothing to do with your Christian faith. Can you answer that question? What does your faith have to do with your work? And if you can begin to answer that question, then you can begin to live distinctly in your workplace. You can begin to say, I'm a janitor, but hey, I clean for Jesus. I'm working my hardest because he is my audience, not whatever I can get away with before my employer. And there's endless implications to thinking about how our Christian faith affects our particular field of work, whether it's a stay-at-home mom, a professor, a lawyer, a doctor, a janitor, a, you know, a restaurant worker. It doesn't matter. It, there's so many... Possible implications of your Christian faith on how you do those things. It's just a lack of imagination in discipleship to not be able to think how your Christian faith can impact the the reason why you work, the way you work, the way you treat people at your work. If God is creator and redeemer of all, then every inch of our lives can be impacted by it. Every moment of our work can be imbued with a sense of doing it for the glory of God, doing it in a way that reflects our God, doing it in a way that is devotional to God, because we understand how what we're doing is not just vaguely for the glory of God, but distinctly for the glory of God. So I hope... That is one aspect of your Christian life that you can continue to grow and to understand. I'm coding the software. How is this for Jesus? Our gracious God will bring in his kingdom. So let's be willing to suffer in our witness. We're fighting for the rights of others. Let's do it in the name of Jesus. If we're caring for the poor, let's do it in the name of Jesus. If we're encouraging our friends and families in their life, let's do it in the name of Jesus. If we're loving the unloved, let's do it in the name of Jesus. If we work for the audience of one and not the praise of men, let's do it for Jesus. And if we share the gospel, let's do it in the name of Jesus. Our gracious God is bringing in his kingdom. Let's suffer in our witness for him. Let's pray.